Well, good morning. So glad you're with us. And we have been walking through our series here through the book of Romans. And as we've been walking through the book of Romans, uh, it has been an intense book, hasn't it? This is not light, fluffy, feel-good type of stuff that we've been kind of processing and, and, and wading through. But it is so crucial. It is so vital because it is so rich. It has great theological understanding, which we need to have. We need to understand who God is, what his plan is, how it works, how we fit into it, and how we can live a life in him. So it's incredibly significant. And over the next three weeks, what we're going to be doing is dealing with the next three chapters in the book of Romans. We're going to deal with nine 10 and 11, but as we look at those, those three chapters are actually one passage. Okay, we have added in these breaks in these different chapters, but they're actually one passage and are intended to be treated as one passage. So as they are, we are going to deal with them as one passage, but it's going to take us three weeks to do it. Okay, uh, It's actually one of the most difficult passages in all of Romans. And um, Pastor Kevin graciously gave it to me to be able to walk through with you and then promptly fled the state. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. I appreciate it. I know he's online right now. Thank you very much for this opportunity. This is good. So uh, as we're going through this here, uh, we have to understand that it's difficult. So why is it so difficult? So let's take a look at why it's so difficult. Well, the first thing is this, is it's just simply the length. Again, you've got three chapters. It's really one passage. It's long. And when, it's, when you get those little bite-sized pieces, it's easy to digest and understand and grasp, grasp it, right? But then when you get a large passage, sometimes that can be difficult and challenging to go, wait, wait, what did he say here, there, there? And it, it can be tough. So just the mere length of itself it makes it difficult. The other difficulty comes when it is, is Paul's non-linear writing style. He doesn't just go, well, there's A, and then you add B, which leads us to C, and then D. He actually kind of goes all over the place. He quotes different people. He's all over the place doing these different things. So uh, it, it makes it difficult sometimes for us to, to grasp and understand uh, what's going on. The other thing is he assumes, as he's writing this, it assumes that we know biblical story and teachings of the prophets. It, it, it assumes that we know all those biblical teachings. And it, it, it assumes that we know every single thing that the prophets have, have talked about. So as he makes reference to them, we would know. But the truth is, is that for us, we don't know all of them, right? We don't know everything the prophet said. Even those of us that are very, very familiar with Scripture, there are times when he goes all over the place and it's easy just to get lost. So that makes it very difficult. And then the last one is this, is his use of theological terminology that requires understanding for clarity. So th there are times when he uses specific terms in particular that we need to make sure that we understand in order to grasp what it is that really he's saying. Otherwise, if we take our modern day interpretations or, just, or, or definitions of words and apply it to what Paul is writing, it's easy to get off base and miss and lose what it is that he's saying. So this is very important. Now, I thought Pastor Rob did an amazing job last week of helping us understand some of these theological foundations and some of the terminology that we'll need to use. And so for those of you that are online that missed it last week, um, I would love to tell you right now that if you missed last week and you haven't heard it, just pause right now. That doesn't mean you, you online. I would just say, pause right now, go listen to his sermon. When you're done, then come back rewatch this, it'll make more sense. Unfortunately, last week we had some technical difficulties. 
um, as happened from time to time, and it, it didn't even get recorded. So it is not online. It is not up there. So what I decided was I'm going to go ahead and recap just a little bit really quickly. I'm not going to go through in depth like he did, so it's not going to be a 30-minute setup. Don't worry, okay? But what we do want to do is I do want to make sure we cover some of this because I think it's crucial in us understanding not only what Paul is writing in the terminology that we're going to come across, but also understanding our perspective and how we're going to approach this and how we're going to attack these next three chapters in this next passage. So last week, hey, we started out, we started out with kind of two different schools of thought that kind of came about. One was Augustine. And as he looked at God, the primary trait that he focused in on was the sovereignty of God, that he is ruler over all, that he is in control, that God is God. God is the one that chooses. God is the one that decides, and he is sovereign over all. Then you had Pelagius that comes along, and as he's looking at God, the primary trait that he focused in on was the holy love of God, that God is love. And as he interacts with us, as he deals with us, he deals, us, deals with us from this aspect of a holy uh, God of love. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't force us to believe. He doesn't force us to do anything. Instead, he has offered us free will to respond to him through love. So this is the two schools of thoughts. Well, then you take these further and you've got theologians all through the ages that start talking about this. And what emerges is you've got a couple of guys. One, John Calvin, who begins, and as he's looking at this and taking really uh, more Augustine's angle here, looking at the sovereignty of God, he looks and he says, well, really, our story begins in Genesis 3. This is where sin enters the world. There's the fall that takes place. And because of that, God's image that we're created in is completely destroyed. And then you had Jacob Arminius, which, by the way, we are a part of in the Nazarene church, the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, not Armenia, Arminian, coming after Arminian. So we have John Wesley and Jacob Arminius. And he comes along and he says, well, I think actually our story begins in chapter 2, which is where we are created in God's image. And in that good, being God's good creation, God's good image, when sin enters into the world, when that fall begins, that God's good image is not completely destroyed, but it is twisted and it is diminished. And I love how Pastor Rob kind of set that up. So then you take that a little bit further. So what does that mean? So Calvin then un starts unrolling his thoughts and he says, well, we have total depravity. We are totally destroyed. That image in Christ is totally, we are, we are totally crushed in this whole process of sin. And then there's unconditional election where God unconditionally can go through and he elects and chooses who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved which then adds to this idea of atonement. Well, wait a second, Christ died on the cross. And he would say, yes. When we read the scriptures, it says Christ died on the cross once and for all. And he would say, yes, but there's limited atonement. That what Christ did on the cross, when he died on the cross, taking the sins, he would say, that's limited. That atonement, that forgiveness of sins goes to those that are elected, those who have been saved have been chosen to be saved. And then they would say that, he would say that grace is irresistible. If God calls you, you're following. You don't have a choice. There is no free will. It's, it's his grace is irresistible. When he calls, boom, that's it. But he's only going to call those that are lack. So that's kind of Calvin's kind of coming at this. But then Arminius comes along and he says, okay, well, we got this idea of prevenient grace that comes along. Because God is a God of love, he extends this grace, this prevenient grace. It's a grace that goes before us. It's the grace that enables us at all to even respond 
to what Christ did. So as we respond to him, it's not our initiating a relationship with God. It's his grace is at work within us and in our lives, enabling us to then say and recognize and respond and say yes to what he has for our life. Because he believes, Arminius, in this free will, this enabling grace, okay? That we have the ability to say yes to God. We also have the ability to say no to God. Some of us in this room have said yes to God. A lot of us in this room have said yes to God. Some of us have said no to God. And that kind of falls under that free will thing. Now, we believe that God desires that none would be lost. We don't believe in limited atonement. We believe that when he died on the cross once and for all, that it was truly once and for all. That God so loved the world that he, the world, the world. I'm going to talk, Pastor Kevin, I love how he does it. I almost said world like 12 times. The world, the world, the world. Sorry, that's in your honor. Um, he loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's inclusive. And we believe that God would have, that none would perish, but that everyone would have eternal life. So there's this saving grace that is extended to you and to me and to everybody and to anybody who is willing to call on the name of the Lord. God's power then begins to work when we say yes to him. <laughs> and we have the Holy Spirit that is imparted on us, and his power starts working through us, transforming us, making us holy, making us righteous, not in and of our own works or our own choices or anything else, but made holy by him, where we are fully set apart, and that's the sanctifying grace that is at work. And I'm going through this really quickly, okay? But couple of the terms. Those are, those are kind of the big pictures. So as we look at this, remember, we are of the West, this Wesleyan Armenian. So we're going to be coming at this from, from this perspective. So some of this stuff makes sense. Uh, terms, a couple of the terms that he, uh, these aren't all of them, but a couple that he talked about, they're going to come into play in this passage, this next three weeks. First one is this idea of predestination. Okay, predestination, uh, Rob rolled this out. We believe that it is God's decision to take the initiative to love us before time even began. That while we were still sinners, before we were even created, we were still in our mother's womb. Not only did he know us, but he initiated love for us. And this call began to call us, to love us into a relationship with him. So that before time began, you and I, every single one of us, were predestined. That God was already before, moving before, saying, I, I want to be in relationship with you. I know it was broken by sin. I want to restore. I want to redeem. I want to be in relationship with you. And then we have this election. Predestinated, we're not going to come into today. It'll come in uh, more next week and the week after. But uh, today what we're going to hear a lot is about election. And um, it's simply this. It simply means Calling. When you hear election, I want you to hear calling. It is an invitation, not an ultimatum. God does not force. He does not coerce, but he initiates. He is the one that initiates. He is the one that calls us. He is the one that invites us into relationship. He is the one that invites us into his plan. He calls us and gives us things. So as we hear the word election, in fact, several times you're going to see election and then two, two words later it's called. They're like, they work, work together. It'll all be in there. So I wanted to make sure that we understood these real quickly so that as they come up, we'll understand the angle that we're coming from. Does that make sense? Good, because I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> but hopefully this is recording and you can go back and watch it later. Uh, but it was really good. I mean, I'm so bummed that we didn't get last week. Man, Rob did such a great job. Wasn't it nice to have him here? 
Oh, so good. Okay, so as we go back to this, remember Romans 9 through 11, three chapters, one passage. And I would encourage you this week and over the next few weeks, read it from tip to tip. Read 9 through 11. We're going to read today chapter 9, but it's intended, like I said, to be read all through together. So I would encourage you, it takes about nine minutes, ten minutes. I'm a slow reader. That's how long it took me. So uh, it's not too bad, but it'll make a whole lot more sense when you understand the whole conversation, not just the first part or breaking it up into parts. What happens is when you break these things up sometimes, sometimes it's awesome, isn't it? It's helpful to go Romans chapter 9, verse 6. You go, oh, great, I get my Bible. But when they first created this thing, by the way, this first thing was written, when this letter was, letter was written, there was no one chapter, two chapter, three chapter, verse 6, 7. None of that was there. That wasn't created until 1200, okay, B, uh, A.D., B.C. Uh, three chapters, so it's one passage. What happens is we break it down. It's easy to take things out of context, to, to kind of get bogged down on one point but not understand where it fits in the size of the big picture. Um, growing up for me in California, one of the things that's always been easy is I, you look out and I go, hey, mountains, that's east. Oh, sun, beach, that's west. It's easy, right? I don't even know if I'm pointing the right direction right now. I think I am, though, because it's there. Anyway, east, west. It's easy. It's open. I can see what's going on. Well, then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and I discovered they had these things called trees. <laughs> and it's not just a couple that they selectively threw around to make things look good. It's a forest. And sometimes it's hard to figure out where you're going. And I would be driving to work, and I'm like, there is no horizon. There are just trees. And this road is winding around, and I'm like, I don't know where I am. And there were a couple times when I got lost. And if you start walking through the forest, you see tree, 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 tree. And as you approach this passage, it's easy to go tree, tree, tree. And it's easy to fixate on a tree. Go, I like that tree. That's an interesting tree. I think that's a tree that's important. And it's easy to make that tree bigger than it is rather than understand that tree is a part of a forest. But I remember the first time I flew out of Atlanta and they took off and went over, right over where I lived in Villa Rica, Georgia, Douglasville, Georgia area, just west of Atlanta. And I was pulling up and I'm like, hey, it's a forest. There's a whole bunch of these. Hey, there's my house. There's the church. There's the mall. There's the barbecue joint. There's the wing place. Okay, I get it. This is where we go. Okay, there's, and there's Atlanta. And I got a lay of the land understood it big time. So what we're going to do is, is I just, again, I want to make sure that we read this and understand this in this context of what really what it's all intended to be. Okay, so three chapters, one passage. Let's make sure that we look at that. So if we look at this passage, though, this one passage, what is this passage? It all centers around a question. And the question is this, the question is this, has God rejected his chosen people? That's the question that Paul is dealing with right now. And if you look at that and say, well, why? But by the way, that question pops up in chapter 11, verse 1. The, the 9 and 10 are kind of this preamble where he's kind of setting up, making his case. Then you have 11. He, he, not only does he say the question, he answers the question. And then he writes the rest of the chapter to make sure that we really, really understand why he answered the way it does. But why is it so important that we answer this particular question? Well, first of all, in the first eight chapters of this book, as we have been going through, he has been insisting over and over and over again that we cannot be made right with God by any religious ritual, by any act of moral living, by any efforts of our own or any works or deeds that we do. 
that we are not made right because we were born into a particular family or have a particular heritage. We're not made right because we follow the law, whether it be the 10 of Moses, the 10 commandments or, or the 100, excuse me, the 613 laws of Moses. We're not made right by that. We're not made right with God because of any proper sacrifices that we've made or, or any offerings that we've given at just the right time, that none of those work, Okay. What he's been hammering home is the only way we are made right with God. That's righteousness, being right before him. We're we're good with God. The only way that we're made right with God is by faith. What is that? It's believing and trusting in Jesus, the Messiah, with our life. That's the only way we're made right by God. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing we can give. To make that happen, that is the only way that we do it, that we believe and we trust in Jesus. We put our faith in him. That's how we are made righteous. Everything else falls short, which means when we read through Scripture, we understand that Jesus, he was the sacrifice for all people, for all sins, for all time. He was the sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices that need to be made. There is no more, the whole sacrificial system is over with. It is done with. Why? Because Jesus was the lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. It is done. It is finished. No more sacrifices. In fact, he doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants our obedience in the midst of all this. And that sacrifice was for all people, not some people, not a few people, not a select amount of people, all people for all sins, not just some of the sins, not just for the little ones that are easy to handle, All of them, the big ones, everything in between for all time. No other sacrifice ever has to be made. This is it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father except for him. And that's what he's trying to get to this. And through Jesus, we understand then that that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who believes that Jesus died on that cross and rose from the grave, that he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah, anybody who believes that can be saved. And what's interesting here is he's talking to them, he's reminding them, he goes, by the way, this isn't just for you Jews that are listening to me right now. It's also for the Gentiles. It includes everybody in the mix of this. And if you look at this in the context of what's going on so far now in the book of Romans, you have to understand that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem at this point generally, almost all, have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They have rejected him. And they've not only rejected Jesus as Messiah, but they've begun to persecute anybody that follows him. And if anybody would know this, Paul would be the one. Because Paul was one of them. He was one of those that was going out, dragging people out of their homes, threatening their lives, throwing them in jail until they would renounce Jesus. He was hitman number one. He understands what's going on there. He understands their unbelief. He understands their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. So what we have here is that they have rejected Jesus. So then they start asking that question, well, has God now rejected us? They start asking that question, well, Paul, are are you saying that, that, that we're no longer his chosen people? Are the Gentiles now the chosen people? Are they the ones that are there? Are, are the promises and the covenant that, that you have made with us, are those null and void? Do they not count anymore? You can understand why this question is so important to answer, right? You can see the significance of the question. And I love this because the question is, again, has God now rejected us? So, God, have you rejected us? And the answer is no. In verse 11, 1, they ask the question, has God rejected his people? The answer to that is 
No, he hasn't. But Paul being Paul couldn't just write a book that had two lines. Has God rejected his people? No, let's move on. No, he didn't do that. He writes this very long, lengthy, uh, convoluted at times, difficult to follow passage that is an answer to that question. He cites different events. He's going to cite different people throughout their history, through their heritage. He's going to quote the prophets in the middle of this. And as he did this to respond, the answer that he gives for them would have totally made sense. They would have understood this. They would have heard these stories. They would have understood this all together and these references. But the problem as we read through this This is one of those passages that as you read through it, you go, all right, that was hard to read. Because there are those. This is just one. It's hard because we don't understand all the references. That's why if you look in your Bible, there are all these different quotations and different references underneath it. Um, I don't know. This is my Bible. This is one of my study Bibles. And if you can see it, over half of it is notes and quotation. And then, then the scriptures up here. Why? Because we need all of those quotes to help us understand what prophet said it in which context. Uh, and we need all the commentary on that to know where things are found. And so that's why there's so many footnotes in our study Bible. So here we go. As we left off last week, remember Pastor Rob was telling us that God is for us. He's trying to help them understand God is for you. God is for us. He he ended with 839 and he said, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is with you. Nothing can separate you. He is there. However, and that's where we pick up in Romans chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 9 today. And we're going to read. Why don't you join me? Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning, okay? Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. Remember, he said this. He's like, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. He is there. He is with us. He is for us. However, as I speak this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in, my, in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, whom is God over all forever praised. Amen. That's key. We're going to come back to that today. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. He's starting to go through different instances that have happened in, in history. And in their heritage, part of the key people and players in the story. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were even born, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by works, 
But by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. By the way, we'll cover that next week. Uh, What then shall I say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on those who have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire. It does not depend on man's effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on those whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then, well, why does God blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall we, shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Well, why did you make me like this? Does your potter have the right? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles, As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the numbers of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were works. The stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, see I lay lay in Zion, a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts them will never be put to shame. I'm going to stop reading the passage at this point because um, of time purposes mostly. But you understand, already you're getting lost a little bit, aren't you? Already you're going through, it's like, wait, wait, what, Hosea, we're in in Isaac. Okay, wait, how does Rebecca, okay. And we just start getting all over the place. This is just the beginning of the passage. So we're going to stop there. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Okay, so now to take a look at this, to go a little further, um, Paul begins here in this passage. And as he starts in this passage, you hear him. His heart is breaking for his people. He's sitting here saying, man, I wish, I wish that I could take the punishment for you. I wish as my people of Israel, I'm an Israelite, I'm one of you. I wish I could take the punishment. You're going, whoa, 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 what punishment? What did they do? Well, this is what he's dealing with, okay? Punishment for what? The punishment, Israel's unbelief. They don't believe. The Messiah is right there. Jesus is in front of them. The truth is there. They don't believe. They don't buy it. They don't give their lives to it. But here's the thing. 
despite, as we're going to see in this passage, despite their unbelief, what Paul is trying to make sure that they understand is that, one, God's promises are still valid. His promises and his covenant with them have not changed. And at the end of the day, we need to understand one thing we can pull from this is that, one, is that God always fulfills his promises. When God makes a covenant with us, when God gives us a promise, we can count on that. We don't always fulfill our promises, but he fulfills his promise. It's always there. He is still faithful. And the promise is that he has not rejected his people. He still has not rejected. Even in their unbelief, he has not rejected them. There's punishment. There are consequences. However, he is not rejected. And as he gets into this section, he then begins to, 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 to kind of list these blessings and these events that have made them a part of God's chosen people. And as he traces through it all, it ends up with tracing back to Jesus, the Christ, who is Lord over all. He says, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is Jesus, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So he's starting as he's setting this whole thing up. There's a couple things that he's trying to do here, okay? First of all, he's trying to establish that Jesus, the Christ, is the Messiah. That Jesus and God are the same. That he is the one that fulfilled the prophecy. The one that you've been waiting for. The Messiah that was promised that was going to be sent has been sent. And he's trying to continually reinforce this idea that understand that when Jesus, he's the Messiah. The Messiah has come. So he's trying to make sure they get that. But then the second thing is this idea who's God over all. He begins, he's introducing this idea of God's sovereignty. The idea that God is the ruler over all. That God is the one that is in charge. He is the one that is in control of everything. So he's trying to make sure that he establishes this. And we need to know that God is sovereign over all. Now, it's interesting, I, I, I was looking at this, and there was an uh, author by the name of R.C. Sproul who, who said this. He said, most Christians acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. In other words, he's saying that most Christians will acknowledge that, yes, oh, is God sovereign? Yes, he's the one that's in control. But then when it comes to my life and my decisions and everything I do, really the sovereignty is, is me. I'm the one in control. I'm the one that's calling the shots. I'm the one that gets to do what I want to do. But the truth is, he is in control. And we like control. We don't like when people take away our control. Especially in America. We get very upset when someone messes with our ability to control and our freedom to control the things that are around us and that which is involved in our lives, right? So we like this. We think we're in control. But the truth is, he is in control. The media is not in control. Doesn't matter what network you listen to. Doesn't matter if you're in Fox. It doesn't matter if you're in uh, uh, CNN. It doesn't matter if you're watching the Disney Channel. The media is not in control. Doesn't matter what you throw out there, what your opinions are, what influence, how you want to spin truth, how you want to try to recreate what is right and what is wrong. Guess what? Mm -mm. God's in control. Media is not in control. Influencers are not in control. Doesn't matter what they say on TikTok. Doesn't matter what anonymous, whatever things that they, their expertise that they're drawing from. On TikTok, it doesn't matter. They're not in control. Um, the government 
is not in control, regardless of which party you belong to. Guess what? They're not in control. In fact, this last week, one of the things I, I love, uh, we were at a Global Leadership Summit uh, was here. We hosted it, and, and one of the pastors um, actually came on at Judah Smith and reminded us in the midst of all this that uh, he reminded us of, of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And what does it say in Isaiah 9, 6? It says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, I don't know about you. Anybody grow up with Handel's Messiah? Okay, so if you're Hannah's Messiah, don't you have the urge to sing it? <laughs> and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That was where you applaud. <laughs> Just kidding, not that. Yeah, but no, but the truth is, he's reminding us, he says, look, the government's going to be upon his shoulders. The dominion is on his shoulders. The control is on his shoulders. Yes, there are going to be governments that come and go. There are going to be parties and presidents. There's going to be all sorts of people that are going to try to govern and rule, but there's only one ruler, and it's on his shoulders, the Messiah, Jesus. Which, by the way, if we can remember that our God is sovereign, then he's in control, it kind of doesn't matter in some ways what goes on out there. It doesn't matter if we like who's elected or we don't. It doesn't matter if we agree with this or that. It means that in the middle of it all, it doesn't matter who's sitting on that, he's still in control. He's still sovereign. But we lose our ever-loving minds because we forget. Who's in control? That despite the best efforts of anybody, despite the influence, our God is sovereign. That brings us peace in the midst of the storms. It brings us order in the midst of chaos. It brings us direction in the midst of a world that is wandering and constantly needing to reinvent itself because it's not found the way. If we can remember that God is in control and live like it, it will change our life forever. It will bring us peace that is beyond understanding in a world that wants to rob, steal, kill, and destroy all of those things. God, not only is he in control, God is not able to be controlled or manipulated like we see happening in our world, correct? He cannot be. He's in control. So he's sovereign. So he's not one where you walk in and boom, you can change how God is and you can change what he wants. Our desires, as he talked about, our desires and our efforts don't matter. His mercy matters, but our desires, our want for something doesn't control God. Okay. It's like you ever been in the store and your kid, if you have children, this has happened. This is not an if, it has happened. If you go into store with children, at some point they're going to ask for something, right? Whether it be baseball cards or it be gum or candy or it be a new whatever, there's always going to be, there's always going to be that ask. And you see it. There's some people that think this, these kids have this strategy, right? If, you, if I want that, I'm going to ask you. And if you say no, I will then respond with pitching a fit. And I'm going to beg and I'm going to plead and I'm going to scream and I'm going to cry and I'm going to put myself on the floor. I'm going to kick my heels. And the bigger the pitch of it, eventually some parents will go, fine, shut up here. Just stop your baza. And that kid now has control and has manipulated the parents. It doesn't work that way. We can pitch the biggest fit we want, whatever, to God. And by the way, he's okay. You can pitch the fit all you want. He wants you to come to him and pray and talk with him about all things. Always. But that doesn't mean he's an acquiesce. He doesn't acquiesce to us. He doesn't. We can't control him. You can't manipulate God like that. 
You're not in control. He's in control. We're not in control. He's in control. Our efforts, our efforts, what we do cannot control him. Okay? There's nothing that we can do. There are no good deeds that we can ask. There's no offering that we can give where God goes, okay, you now deserve this. There's nothing that we can do that as we look at this, that God goes, oh, wow, thank you so much. You helped me out with that. I owe you one. God's never said that to anybody. Okay? Nobody. God doesn't owe anybody anything. He is the one that is in control, not us. But we like to be in control, don't we? We like to be in control. We, we think that we can dictate the parameters of our relationship with God, that God, this is how it's going to work. This is how you're going to relate to me. This is how I'm going to relate to you. And he goes, no, you're not in charge of this relationship. You're not in control. I am. I'm going to set them. You have a choice of whether or not you're going to operate within my parameters or not, but I'm the one that sets these parameters. And if you look at this control, you look at people have left their relationship with God because of the issue of control, Right? Whoa, 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 God, you're, you're telling me that I have to submit my life to you. You mean it's not what I want. But I want this to happen. How? It, no, I, I have to give that up and I have to go your way. I'm not in control of, of my finances. You're the one that's blessed me with everything. You're the, I'm not in control of my sexuality and I don't get to decide, no, you're in control of that. Oh, oh I'm out of here. And people leave their relationship with God out of, because of control issues. We want control, but God is sovereign. Everything is upon his shoulders. We cannot forget. No, did I delete it? Yeah, I deleted it. Okay. We can't forget that God is in control. He is the one that is sovereign over all. He is in control. Okay. And in his sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, he chooses and he calls, he elects, he invites people to play different roles for them and different, for different purposes. Okay. In this passage, he talks about being, some being for more noble purposes, some being for more common purposes. But his invitation, this invitation, okay, his, his choosing of us to play these different roles, this invitation isn't based on our merits. It's not like he's been watching your life. You've been doing such a good job. You've been making all the right things, saying all the right things. Guess what? Okay, now I'm going to call you. Now I'm going to do it because you've earned it. No, it's not like that. And it's not based on culture. Culture doesn't dictate his movement and his acts as the sovereign God, okay? In fact, a lot of times he runs counter to culture when it comes into it. Think about it in Jesus' day, the firstborn was number one, right? There were certain birthrights and things that went along with that. And yet you look at Jesus coming along in so many stories, what, who does Jesus use to elevate and to put into a position of leadership? The youngest son, the, not the first, but the last, not the greatest, but the least. Look at the disciples. Those were not the pick of the litter. They were not the cream of the crop. They were the castaway leftovers that were back fishing. and They were just nobodies. And yet, who did Jesus take? Lead, teach, disciple, and then use to change the world. God's the one that decides who he's going to do what, but make no decision. He's given every single one of us a purpose. And it's not unfair that some may seem more prominent than others. Some are a part of the story. He chose Abram, an idol-worshiping guy, to become the father of nations and become Abraham. Okay, that was, he chose him to do that. 
That's God's choice. And it's not unfair that some are chosen to play certain roles, some are not. We can't get caught up in that. We need to trust God and remember that he is sovereign in all of that. But make no mistake, everyone is called for a purpose. You and I were created on purpose for a purpose. I mean, basic, if nothing else, if we can't understand, we were created to be in relationship. Our purpose is to be in relationship with God, which we can't do on our own. Remember, Jesus is the one. He's the way that makes that happen. We're called to love our God with every everything that we are. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. That doesn't change. Those are general, but there's also some specific purposes that he's created you and me to do. And what we need to understand is, is, is what are those callings? What do you think God's called you to do? As, as a teacher, has he called you to be the light in your classroom or a light on your school campus? As an educator, has he, has he put you, has he called you to reach out and love on those students that are maybe outcasts or on their own. What is he calling you to? Has he called you to teach Sunday school? Right now, you know, we got the youth group up there. They're needing help. Our junior high and high school, man, our group is growing. It is fantastic. Pastor Kyle's doing an amazing job. We need people. Is God calling to you that? And yet you're just kind of pushing that off. Well, somebody else would do that. Our kids ministry, second, I taught fourth and fifth grade boys last week. I guarantee you this, you will not be bored teaching fourth and fifth grade boys. Never, Chris, we miss you. They're awesome. They have a lot of energy. And last week we gave them, um, we gave them glue and glitter. And all I could think of is this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. And it was a bad idea, but we did it. And they learned because they revealed that they're supposed to love God and love others. So they had that going on. But this thing is God calling you that. We have these needs. We have these things. And God's wired and created you. Is that something that you can step into? Is that a calling that God would place on you that you would lean into? What has God called you to? What are you doing with that calling? One, we have to understand what God's called us to, but also what are you going to do with it? We need to be leaning into God's calling in our life as we embrace the world, as we deal with life on a day-to-day -day basis, as we love on one another. We need to make sure that we do that. Okay, the next thing that we kind of get out of this thing is, well, that's what I just kind of went over. Okay, so something to reflect on as you have lunch today. The next thing is, if he is sovereign. And this, they ask the question in verse 19. He gets to this. He says, okay, okay, so we're going to punish because of this. Well, if you're sovereign, why are you blaming us? He goes, okay, let me tell you why. While we understand that God is sovereign, while we understand that he is in control, we also understand that he doesn't coerce us. He does not make us believe and receive and accept. It is something that we choose to do or not. So now, rather than than him making us, we have this prevenient grace that goes before that enables us to be able to respond to his calling and his invitation in our life. It enables us to respond and believe, and they've had the ability to choose to believe or to reject. And they have chosen to reject. They had the truth of Jesus right before them, the truth of Messiah right before them, and they rejected it. So guess what? If you have the ability to choose, to believe or to reject, and you've chosen to reject, guess what? You have to take now responsibility for the choices that you've made. Another thing we don't really like to do these days, we don't like to take responsibility for ourselves. But the truth is you're responsible for the choices that you make. 
And he's calling them on them right now. You made this choice. You've rejected me. So here we go. So as we kind of wrap this up, here we go back to the question. Has God rejected his people? In verse 11, we'll hear him say, no, by no means has he rejected his people. No, he hasn't. But they have rejected him. This is why Paul's heart is breaking. He's like, man, it's right there. He's building this case. God is with you. He is for you. Nothing can separate from his love, but you are walking. You're rejecting him. You are not believing. It's right there in front of you. Well, has he rejected us? No, he's not rejected you. You've rejected him. This is the beginning of the argument. This is a part that he is going with. His chosen people have rejected him. I just want to end with this today because let's kind of bring this home. Let's make this a little bit personal for us. And I want you to hear something that you may or may not need to hear. Those of you out in, uh, online today, wherever you're at, I just want you to hear this very, very clearly. Okay? I want you to hear this. God has not rejected you. Read those words. Listen. Receive this. God has not rejected you. You may be sitting here this morning with a laundry list of things of why he should reject you, why you think he's rejected you. You can tell him all the things that you've done wrong, all the reason why he should walk away and go, forget it, I'm done with you. calls us, who invites us into relationship, says, I have not rejected you. Which then leads to the question, perhaps as you're sitting here this morning, have you rejected him? Maybe God's been calling you to some hard, difficult things. Maybe things have been challenging and you're like, I, I, I'm out. God, I need to be able to control the situation. I'll come back when I've got this worked out, which by the way, doesn't work out. Maybe you've rejected, have you rejected him this morning? Maybe you, you claim his sovereignty, but really when it comes to it, you really believe more in your sovereignty than his sovereignty. Maybe today as you're sitting here, you're struggling to believe. I'm hearing the facts. I'm hearing about this Jesus. I'm, I'm hearing this truth. I got this, but man, I'm having a hard time. God is calling us. The Holy Spirit is enabling us. His grace is enabling us this morning to believe if we would receive it. You gotta understand his promises are still valid to you. He always fulfills his promises. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. He is still calling us to a life that is filled with purpose and relationship with him. He is inviting you and me to believe. The question just comes down to, will you believe? Will you accept him? Or not. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. Okay? And as I pray, I just want to do this. All heads bowed, eyes closed, or not. I don't really care. But I do want this. If today, maybe you've been in a position where you've been rejecting God, and you're like, okay, God, I'm going to stop fighting. I want to give you control. I'm here. I'm going to submit to you. 
Maybe it's just in a section, a little section that you've been holding on to, an area in your life you're like, God, I, I've been rejecting your control in this area, but Lord, I do believe. So I want to give you this. I'm going to, by faith, I want to give this to you. Or, or maybe you're here today and you've been struggling to believe and you're saying, okay, God, I'm, I'm buying in. But if you would say today, I believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died on the cross and that he rose from the grave. And I, by the way, I'm not just talking about first time. If you believe this, I want you to just stand and pray with me as we close today. If you would say, I believe that you are the son of God, that you are the Messiah, that you died on the cross and you rose from the grave, defeating sin and death for me, for my sins. And I believe that you are sovereign and in control. And I vow to live as if you were in control. I just want you to stand today as we close. What I don't want is for us to stand here this morning and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is sovereign, but then walk back out here and live as if we are. The call to a life of following Christ is a call to a life of submission to his authority. Not the authorities of this world, but him and him alone. Let me pray over us today as we close. Father God, I pray for those that are here today, those that are at home today, all of us, Lord, as we want to follow you, as we want to be followers of Christ, as we want to be Christians, Lord, it means and it requires of us, Lord, that we submit our lives to you today. So today we stand before you and say, here we are. We believe you are the son of God. We believe you died on the cross. We believe that you are sovereign in control and we submit ourselves to you, Lord. I pray, Lord, in the moments and in the days and the weeks to come, Lord, as there are those moments that flare up where we demand or we try to take control back or we wrestle with you on this, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to continue to be submitted to you. Thank you, God for not rejecting us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not letting go of your promises and your covenants with us that you are faithful. Thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for being faithful to us and in our lives. Help us now, Lord, to be faithful. May your Holy Spirit do a continuing work in us. May your sanctifying grace transform us and may we look more and more like you every day. May our lives be set apart for you and you alone. May you have our whole hearts. God, we need your strength. That's why we need to walk every single day in your word and in your spirit. Help us do just that. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much for being here today. I'm excited. We will continue on. I encourage you as you go this week, whether you're at home or here, read 9 through 11. It'll make everything make a whole lot more sense as we're having these conversations. But we'll keep on with the message next week. Have a blessed week. Love you guys.